Hey, my name is Cole Fakes. I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're in the second week of six weeks in 1 Peter. And if you've got any kind of math background, you realize that we only did two verses last week. There's five chapters in 1 Peter. And so we are going to be on the move tonight, which I'm not sure how that happened. He does two verses last week and said, why don't you finish the chapter? That's 23 more verses. So we're going to be speeding along tonight in 1 Peter, but as long as you got that open, that's where we'll be. How many of you guys saw the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Anybody a couple of years ago? It's a movie, Tom Hanks is in it, and it's a movie about how they took Mary Poppins from a book to a movie and the process that they went through and how they wrote the music and maybe the most fascinating part of the movie is the relationship between the lady who wrote the book, Mrs. Travers, and Walt Disney, played by Tom Hanks. And the lady that wrote the book, Mrs. Travers, has got to be one of the most difficult, stubborn, meticulous, particular people you've ever come across in your life. And it gets so bad that she finally takes her script and goes home and says, we're not making the movie. Because what had happened was, in the making of this movie, they had started to uncover some things in her past. That the, Miss, Miss Pop, uh, the Mary Poppins story was actually Mrs. Travers' story, played out in some ways that, once she saw it on the screen, made her uncomfortable. And there's this great scene at the end of the movie, and I won't spoil anything for you because it is worth seeing, but make sure if you see it, you also allow two hours afterwards to see Mary Poppins because you're not going to be able to not watch that movie after you see it. But there's this scene in her house and she's sitting across from Walt Disney and they're talking about the power of stories, the power of forgiveness, the power of living down your past and breaking free from that. And then Walt Disney says this amazing line to her. He says, this is what storytellers do. We restore order by imagination. We instill hope again and again. This is what storytelling does, is it restores order. It puts things right again by imagination. And in the process, it instills hope again and again and again. That line has just stuck with me. And I thought about it as I was reading this chapter this week, because if we were to summarize 1 Peter chapter 1, it might be something like this. God is telling a story in your life. No matter who you are or what your past is or where you're going or how you're wired, God is telling a story. It begins with being born again. It ends with holiness. And it's filled with love all the way through. One of the things that Peter wants us to know is that God uses our stories to restore hope again and again and again in our lives. In fact, your story may just be the most powerful thing about you that you have to give to something else. As we talked about last week, the letter opens the way that letters typically open. It just says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Glad we got that out of the way last week. In the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a pretty standard letter opening. You say who it's from, who it's to, what you want to talk about. And then the next customary thing that that people do when they're writing letters is they give what's a prayer or a benediction. And what that does is it serves as a table of contents for the letter. And Peter, you can almost see Peter in this doxology because if you read the Gospels, you know Peter's one of those guys that talks first and thinks later. He's one of those people that gets so excited and whatever he's thinking, he says, even when it's the most inappropriate thing to say. Like I remember the story of the transfiguration. This is maybe the best story to characterize Peter. Jesus goes up on a mountain and he wants to show his glory to his disciples. So he splits his skin open and he starts to glow and he looks radiant and glorious. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear with him and the disciples are like cowering down because of how bright it is. And you know what Peter says? He says, Lord, it is a good thing that we are here. And you say, really, Peter? Of all the things that you could have said, not praise the Lord or hallelujah maybe or You are the true and risen God. You said, it is good for you three that we are here. Good for you, Elijah. If I hadn't been here, this wouldn't have been this spectacular. He says, do you want us to make a tent for us to all stay and have a camp out? And that's Peter in a nutshell. He just gets ahead of himself. He says whatever's on his mind. And in the opening part of this letter, that's what he does. He can't contain the joy that he has, that he wants to share with you. And I'll read it to you. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all one sentence. One big run-on sentence. That's the way Peter talks. He has so many concepts in his head. He's so excited to tell you about the story that God is writing in you that it just all comes out in this doxology. And what the rest of the letter does is it takes verses 2 and 3 through 8 and it expands on each of those themes. In fact, every theme that he's going to mention for the rest of the book is contained in what I just read you. This is how Greek writers would often let you know what's coming over the course of the letter. They would include it in their opening prayer, or in this case, an opening doxology. What we're interested in in this opening section of Peter's letter is two things. We want to know what he means by being caused to be born again. And then starting in verse 10, we want to know what role do we play in the story that God is telling He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, last week, we talked about that tricky theological concept, election. 
predestination, foreknowledge. And one of the things that is underscored in a letter like this is that there are certain things when we talk about election and foreknowledge that everybody agrees upon. Whether you're Wesleyan, Arminian, whether you're a Calvinist, whether you're a hyper-Calvinist, one of the things that we all agree on is that salvation starts with God. Salvation starts with God. Now, how that salvation comes to you can be a matter of debate, whether that's a provenient grace kind of thing where your will is freed up to be able to respond or whether that's something where the Spirit comes and regenerates so that now we can't do anything but respond to the grace that God has given us. All of us agree that salvation was not our idea. It wasn't human idea. It was God's idea. Salvation starts with God in every person's life. He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope. Not, thank goodness we caused ourselves to be born again. Not, thank goodness we decided in the midst of our sin to choose God. Thank goodness that God decided to cause us to be born again. The important thing about this is it establishes an order in the Christian life that Peter's going to use for the rest of the letter. It's important to realize that Peter always takes an inside-to-outside approach to your life. When you paint this against the backdrop of what these people were going through, and in some ways what we're going through, this is really important. When Peter's writing this, the Christians in, in the city that he's writing to have begun to be persecuted by the empire. So the government is starting to be more and more oppressive to them. They're starting to feel more constricted. And unlike some of the other people, like the ones we talked about with Nero last week, these Christians are facing more of a social persecution than they are a physical persecution. They're not able to participate in the marketplace like other people. They're not able to uh, participate in the status of society like other people are. They don't have the same privileges or interpersonal relationships that other people do. Instead, they are being demoted slowly but surely to the lowest parts of society. This kind of social persecution and alienation that's going on gives you the thought that maybe what's on the outside is more important than what's on the inside. Because when you have the feeling where you look around and you see somebody who's not doing the things that you're doing as well as you're doing them, who doesn't have the values and the virtues that you do, and they're climbing the social ladder, and you are free-falling down the social ladder, the temptation is not to change your heart. The temptation is to change your actions. The temptation is to change the way that you do business. The temptation is to change the way that you interact with other people. Maybe you need a little bit of an appearance adjustment. But where Peter's coming from is he says, no, actually because God was the instigator, because God caused us to be born again, what happens on the inside is always more important than what happens on the outside. And the way that God works in your life will always follow that pattern. God is doing something in you that will begin to come out of you. We as Christians have been born again, and that sets the tone for everything that we do in the world. Now, he says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is not a word that we might associate with an internal change. 
especially this construction, which only appears here in the New Testament. What does it mean to have a living hope? What's the difference between a living hope and a non-living hope? One of the teachers that we have in our college ministry, one of the things that I get to do here at the church is shepherd our college students. And he was teaching a lesson on a different passage this week, and he was talking about the power of hope. And one of the things he said that stuck with me was, the important thing about the hope that God gives is that it's dynamic not static. Worldly hope is static. It's dependent completely on what's going on with you. If there are hopeful circumstances, then you can be hopeful. If there's something that's going your way, then you can be hopeful. But the important thing about godly hope is that it's dynamic. It doesn't depend on your circumstances. And in fact, in this situation, a living hope means that God is able to create hope because of what he's done in you, no matter what's going on around you. You've been born again, not to a hope that's dependent on other people or dependent on your circumstances. You've been born again to a living hope, a hope that is impermeable from outward circumstances. Sometimes I wonder if we underestimate the power of hope or on the reverse of that, sometimes I wonder if we underestimate the power of hopelessness. A couple of years ago when I got here, they took a few of our staff down to the food bank. And at the time, they had a tour of a slum in East Africa called Kibera. And they told us that 750,000 people live in this slum. And they will never leave there. Never. The vast majority of these people will be born and live their entire life and die within the confines of this slum. It is putrid and disgusting, and they, this was crazy. They pumped the smell into the exhibit so that it felt like you were there. They showed you what it looked like. They heated up the room so that you could feel it. And it was this sense of total and utter hopelessness that your whole life might be confined to something smaller than this stage. And that's all there was for you. But you know what the amazing thing is? People come to Christ in that slum. People trust in Christ in that slum. And that makes sense to us a little bit. If you're that hopeless, you've got to be looking for something else. Why not Christianity? But the point that Peter's making is that works in the slum But it also works in the mansion. It also works in the mansion. I remember hearing an interview a couple of years ago with Tom Brady, who's not a believer. But I remember him saying, I woke up after the Super Bowl. And I'd won, it was the MVP, all of that. And I just had to wonder, is this it? Is there more than this? And I wonder if the hunger for more and more and more fame and more and more trophies and avoiding the consternation of the NFL and declaring war on the commissioner. I wonder if all of that in some way is expressing the same hopelessness that the people in the slum are expressing, but instead of using the things that are available to them, he's using the things that are available to him. Peter would know as well as anybody that if the gospel doesn't work in the slum and the mansion, It's not really the gospel. The gospel is a living, dynamic hope. It works everywhere. It's undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
Think about this promise. Because of God's great mercy, it says in verse 3, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, both things that God did, there is now an inheritance that's waiting for you. Because of God's great mercy, because of what he did through his son, because he wanted to have a relationship with you, now there's an inheritance waiting in heaven for you. And maybe the coolest thing is you didn't do anything to earn it. And since it's kept in heaven, you can't do anything to destroy it. So he says, if that's the case, you're being guarded through your faith. That doesn't mean that we're passive in this. We trust in Christ. We put our faith in him for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he takes a conspicuous turn. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. You know what one of the most dangerous words in the Bible is? Though. The whole passage changes tones on this word. God has a salvation that's ready for you. It's going to be revealed in the last time. You're rejoicing in verse 6. Though, as a side note, or maybe you want to know this, or just as a footnote, you will be experiencing various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've got this inheritance. You've got God initiating contact with you. You've got God causing you to be born again. He's rich in mercy that he wants to lavish on you. Your inheritance can't be defiled by the things of the earth, but... You have to suffer for a little while. Though for a little while, there's going to be some suffering. There's two keys to Peter when it comes to suffering in this passage that help us to explain why a person who has an eternal inheritance needs to suffer. Number one, one of the things that he assures us of in this passage is your suffering has an expiration date on it. Your suffering has an expiration date on it. If you're trusting in Christ, no suffering that you go through is eternal. Every single piece of suffering that happens in your life as a Christian has a fixed end date on it. I think about in Revelation, when he tells his people, you're suffering for seven days. On that seventh day, your suffering is over. God has a time fixed for us. Whether it's a lifelong suffering or whether it's a season of suffering or something that you're going through that's a daily battle, God has a fixed end date in the future for your suffering. And if you trust in Christ, there is no suffering, no amount of harm, no amount of bad luck, no amount of bad choices that you make can have an eternal impact of suffering on you. He says, though you are being guarded by faith, you must suffer for a little while. There's this relationship that theologians talk about a lot called the already not yet part of our salvation, which if you've been a Christian for more than a day, you realize the tension here. There, is, there are so many things that the Bible says are already ours. And so many of those things don't immediately feel like they're ours. 
Like if you just go through the promises of the Bible, you're like, when is this one going to come true? When is that one going to come true? When is God going to do this? When is God going to do that? And you live in this tension knowing that God is a faithful God, but that some of your salvation is already, and some of the promises of God are not yet. But the promise that Peter makes here is, if you are suffering, and here he just takes it for granted. He doesn't say, are any of you suffering? He just says, you guys are suffering, but it's for a little while. Secondly, suffering actually produces something. Suffering is capable of producing something in your life. Look at verse 7. So that, the, the suffering is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Your suffering has an end date, it has an expiration date, but it also is doing something while it's here. It's going to result at the coming of Christ in more praise and more glory and more honor than you would have resulted in if you had not suffered the way that you would. When I think about this, it's like the, the New Testament is telling us that there are certain materials, like gold, that don't come in their purest form. In fact, if we never tested gold, if we never heated it up and put it in a fire, it wouldn't be nearly as spectacular as it is. It's the same way when, when you get a new pair of shoes, a new pair of leather shoes. Those shoes are going to be the worst pair of shoes that you own for the first two weeks that you wear them. But after that, as the leather begins to break in and soften and mold, as you begin to work up a patina on the leather, then they become the best pair of shoes that you own. That's what suffering does for Christians. It breaks us in. It tests our faith. It brings out the most amazing things in us. It strips away the impurities. One of the things that the New Testament does is it always argues that your suffering is not meaningless. If you're a Christian... There's no suffering, no matter how long, no matter how terrible, no matter if you see it right now or not, there's no suffering that's meaningless. Actually, every suffering is producing something in your life. One of the things that's been most helpful to me as a pastor in reading the New Testament is looking at the way that the New Testament authors talk about suffering. The way that we tend to talk about suffering from a human standpoint is when somebody's suffering and they come to you, probably your gut response and my gut response is to say, it will get better in the future. Or God has a plan for this. Or when you're out of this, you're going to look back and you're going to see this and, and you're going to see what God was doing. We tend to look to the future when it comes to suffering. But God actually had something else in store in the New Testament. Almost without exception. The New Testament writers, when they talk about suffering, don't look forwards, they look backwards. When you're suffering, Peter says, Paul says, John says, one of the most powerful things that you can do is look backwards. Remember that part we talked about? You have been caused to be born again. 
You have been given an inheritance. You have been made alive with Christ. You have been reconciled to God. You have been brought back into communion with other people. Do you think that the God who did that for you is not going to bring you out of your suffering? That's the argument in the New Testament. The God that started something in you is going to finish something in you. If you can look back and see how God brought you here, then you can look forward and see how God is going to bring you through. Peter starts this passage by saying, thanks be to God for the things that he's done for us. Though you have to suffer for a little bit, if he's done that and been faithful, don't you think he'll do this and be faithful? For those of you who are suffering, which is a large portion of us, that's our, that's our fate as humans, is to suffer in this world. How many times are you looking backwards to see what God has done to bring you here, to see that he will bring you out? Peter begins to expand on this in verse 10. He says, now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The suffering that takes place in us, the trials that takes place in us, produce our story. They produce our story. How amazing is it to sit and listen to somebody who has an amazing faith story? It's one of my favorite things to listen to somebody who has a great conversion story. And these are everywhere. They are everywhere. I think about some of my favorite conversion stories, like Chuck Colson converted as he's going into prison so that he can bring all kinds of Christians out of prison. I think about Jim Elliott and the Horani people in Ecuador where he gave his life so that his wife and his kids could go there and see those people come to Christ and forgive them for murdering their husbands and their dads. Those kinds of stories get you jazzed. One of my favorite ones is a story they tell about Charles Spurgeon. His sermons were printed in the newspaper every week. And what they would do at the time, this is the end of the 19th century, is they would use old newspapers and they would use it to wrap up things at the grocery store. So they would wrap up things like meat and, and, and uh, perishables and butter. And there's a story that goes, there was a woman who was cooking and she had a stick of butter. And as she unwrapped it, she realized that there were a few lines of a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. And as she read them, she was convicted and went to his church and said, I have to know how to be saved. What's the rest of the sermon? It's amazing to hear these stories. But the unfortunate thing is when you hear that, sometimes the temptation is to feel like, well, I don't have a story like that. I wasn't converted by a newspaper wrapped, wrapped in a stick of butter. I wasn't converted on a missionary trip. I wasn't converted on my way into prison. I was a pretty good kid. 
And I don't remember being that rebellious. I don't have the story where I kind of went down to the very bottom and, and I, everything was taken from me and then God built me back up. Instead, I've had a pretty normal life. I have a pretty okay story. In fact, if I were to tell you my testimony, it might be two sentences long. I was born, grew up in church, didn't do a ton of wrong things, accepted Christ. I've been following him ever, ever since. The problem with some of these testimony stories is that we're tempted to think that that's a boring story. That that's not a very exciting story. But Peter says, oh no, 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 no. That's not a boring story. In fact, let me tell you about your story. Your story doesn't begin with you. It begins with the Holy Spirit. It actually begins in the first page of the Bible. Colfax's testimony story begins in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit that was working there then in Genesis 3 spoke and he said that someday the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of Satan. Your story actually continued into the prophets. He says, these prophets, they weren't sure when the Messiah was going to come. They didn't know exactly what this would look like, but they were speaking about it. This reminds me of when we were in Israel, the expectation that the Messiah would come. We drove by this little village, and there's this group of people in Israel named the Druze people. And they're a very interesting culture. They are Jews, kind of, in that they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah, but they believe that the Messiah is still going to come. And they believe that the Messiah could come at any minute, any time the Messiah could come. But they have one kind of weird belief. They believe that the Messiah is going to be born of a man. And so what they do is they have these big baggy pants. Like there's this pocket in their pants so that just in case you are the person that the Messiah is born from, you won't know because there's not going to be the whole pregnancy thing. It's just going to be kind of a snap and then the Savior's born. You wouldn't want the Savior to hit the ground. So they have this pocket sewed into all of their pants because they're expectant for the Messiah to come. And what this passage is saying is there's an expectation among these prophets they're waiting eagerly. They think any minute, it's like Simeon in the temple. I won't die until I see the Savior come. They're inquiring, they're searching, they're waiting for the Spirit of Christ to come. But it was not revealed to them that the Savior was coming in their lifetime. They weren't writing for themselves, they were writing for you. The Spirit who was riding in them, the spirit who was brooding over the waters, the spirit who said that he, Christ was raised from the dead by his power, was actually starting your story with them. When Ezekiel said that God was going to give you a new heart, that's part of your story. When Isaiah said that in the midst of his suffering, the Messiah will see you, the light of life, and continue, that's part of your story. When the Spirit spoke through Habakkuk and said that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters fill up the seas, that's part of your story. The Spirit is writing your story from the beginning of time to the end of time. The Gospel Transformation Bible says that all of the Bible 
is one unfolding story of God's redemption of human sinners that each of us get written into. Oh, you actually have a marvelous story. God saved you, caused you to be born again, prepared a situation for you, carefully laid out good works for you to walk in. He's going to preserve you. He's going to walk next to you. He's going to give you trials to show your faith and purify you. This story is so good, the end of this passage says that even angels long to look into your story. It's like up in heaven. They're standing on their tiptoes is what this verb means. They are straining their necks to see how your story and my story will play out. It's like up in heaven. They gather around the throne and they say, tell us a story again of how you saved humanity through Jesus Christ. Oh, tell us, tell us that person's story again. Tell us, tell us about the one who grew up in the Christian home. Tell us about the one who didn't know you until the very last minute of their life. Tell us about the one where everything dropped out and, and it didn't look like everything was hopeless. Tell us about the one who thought they had it all figured out and thought they were a great person. And by your spirit, you regenerated them. Tell us that story again. It says, no, no, God is telling a very good story in you. Like we said at the beginning, this is a story that brings hope again and again and again. You have a very, very good story. So in the beginning of this letter, up, up to this point, Peter has told us that God has done something in you. He's done something that moves from the inside out. And as, as what he's done moves out, it creates this story, this really good story that he's telling in you. It starts when you were converted. It starts at your regeneration. And it ends in your holiness. That's what we're going to talk about next. And there's earnest love all the way through. One of the things that the authors of the New Testament commonly do is they go from doctrine to application. So sometimes we call this orthodoxy. That means right belief to orthopraxy. That means right practice. And you can almost always tell when they're doing this by looking for one word. And it's the first word in verse 13. Therefore. Therefore is a signal, biblically, that we're moving from what you should believe to what you should do. And what Peter is doing is saying, okay, if you believe what I just told you, if you believe all that about God causing you to be born again, if you believe that God's writing a great story, this is what you should do. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with precious things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. When I was at OSU, I had a pledge brother who was on the football team. He was a defensive lineman, didn't get to play a ton, but he was in our pledge class, and I always like to ask him about the football program. Most of you probably can tell this from first look, but I didn't get many offers to go to college to play football. But I was interested in what they did at practice on the collegiate level. And I would ask him about it. I said, in defensive line practice or offensive line practice or whatever you're doing, I said, what do you spend your time doing? Like, what are they at the college level or at the pro level? Like, what do you spend a lot of time on? And what he said really fascinated me. He said, you know what we work on maybe more than anything else? Footwork. Footwork. I said, you've got 350 pound guys out there whose job is basically to push other 350 pound guys around. And you're worried about a little, for those guys, maybe 14 inches of skin at the bottom of your body. That's what you're worried about? How about biceps? How about we worry about that? Or how about blocking schemes? How about we worry about that? No, actually, we spend a lot of our time working on footwork. Your foot, just one inch in the wrong place, makes all the difference in what you're able to do or not do. He says, actually, starting with the wrong foot a lot of times is why you get pancaked versus why you pancake your guy. It all comes down to footwork. Peter is going to show us in this passage that as a Christian, footwork makes an important difference. In fact, a lot of the key to our success or failure when it comes to holiness is footwork. What are you standing on? What foot are you moving first? There's an inch or two difference between being faithful in holiness and not being faithful, between total success and total failure. To understand this, we need to know a little bit about the concept of holiness. What does it mean to be holy? Biblically, the word holy means set apart for God. That God has reserved something for himself. In the Old Testament, we see this by the things that God owns. Only certain people can touch them. Only certain people can come into God's presence because he's holy. I think about the Nazarite vow. It says in Leviticus chapter 6, or in Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite is holy to me all the days of his vow. It's like when holy things are around, God is reserving them. He's taking special care for them. It's almost like when you go into a restaurant and you see a sign on a table that says reserved. That table is holy. What happens when you become a Christian is God puts a little sign on you that says reserved, holy, set apart. This is not for just any use. This is not for just anything. No, this actually has a special purpose. Special care needs to be taken with this one. This one's mine. One of the things that this leads to that Peter points out is a holy fear that comes in knowing that we serve the living God. This is something that has drifted away a little bit in modern Christian churches is holy fear. 
The Bible is pretty clear. God is scary. Like when, when God shows up in the Old Testament, people are not snuggling up next to him. They're usually not glad he's there. They usually don't feel very good about him being there. Instead, they fall on their faces and wish that they were dead. One of the things that they must do in angel training in heaven, when you see a human, the first thing you should say is, get up, don't be afraid. Every time you see an angel in the Bible, the glory of the Lord comes down. The person acts like they're dead. They fall on their face. And the angel says, get up, stop doing that. Don't, no, don't worship me, worship God. Holy fear is one of the markers of being a Christian. It's okay to be afraid of God. But what Peter's saying is there's a specific reason you should be afraid of God. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear that God is against you. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear that God is angry at you. He says, in fact, the only reason that you need to fear God is because God has the power to judge. It says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as a father who judges according to this standard, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Basically what he's saying is, if you believe that God has a standard of holiness, and you believe that he sent his son, the most precious thing to him, to come and get you, and then you act like none of that matters in your life, you should be very afraid. You should be very afraid. One important thing to remember, though, when we talk about holiness in this book is who wrote this book? Peter. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God, I put this on your note page, which we got jumbo note pages tonight. Um, he says this. We sometimes fear that the New Testament teaching of being devoted to God and on growing in holiness will place unbearable demands on us. This is true. If you've ever tried to be holy, you felt this. We're worried that sometimes the teaching on holiness place unbearable demands on us. But remember that it is to the apostle Peter that we're listening to here. Few disciples of the Lord Jesus can have made a more public mess of their early Christianity than he did. But the very fact that it is this disciple writing about holiness ought to reassure us that Christ does not command what he will not provide. Isn't that amazing to remember? There are few people, he says, that have done as poor a job as Peter at the beginning of his Christian faith. If you think about it, from the crucifixion on, what did Peter do? Denied Jesus three times. He left him for dead on the cross. He went back to fishing, pretended like nothing ever happened. He didn't believe at first when Jesus rose from the dead. It would be hard to get a worse track record than Peter in only three days at the beginning of his Christian faith. And what he's reminding us of is the very fact that Peter now, 30 years later, is writing us this letter where it says, hey, because Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, you should be holy. 
it assures us of the fact that if God is going to command that from us, then he must be providing the strength for us. Because there's no way Peter could have done this on his own. This is one of those times where it is okay to compare yourself to others. Where you say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Peter. And if God could do this in Peter, then he could do it for you. The key, the footwork here, is what he says to do. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This word fully means without reserve, without hesitation. Don't look back. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. If you want any hope of pursuing holiness as a Christian, it's not going to come from your own effort. It's not going to come from your own abilities. Instead, it's going to come by setting all of your hope, every part of your story, on the grace of God. This means that if you want to be holy, one of the things that we have to do, if we're thinking about which foot to start with or where to put it, that means if you're trying to pursue holiness, stop making backup plans when the grace of God is needed. It says in the Bible that God gives grace to the humble. This is one of the qualities of the people that are marked by Christ's work is God gives grace to the humble. If that's the case, if it's really the case that God gives grace to the humble, and this passage says, set your hope fully on grace, then the one thing we cannot do is think that our achievement is going to lead to holiness in our life. If we think that our achievement, our effort, our works, our reputation, the things that we've earned for ourselves are going to lead us closer to God in holiness. Peter says you're not really setting your hope fully on grace. Maybe you're doing a 50-50. 50% grace, if that works out, if God gives me some unmerited favor, that would be awesome. But just in case, I've got this plan here where I get to be the hero and my skills and talents get to save the day. What he's saying is, no, set your hope fully on grace. When it comes to holiness, this isn't true in every single area of your life. I'm not saying that you should never set boundaries or never be wise in the eyes of the world. But when it comes to your holiness... When it comes to eliminating sin from your life, when it comes to what God is bringing out of you, you should constantly be putting yourselves in positions where only the grace of God is going to come through. Not my works, not my efforts, not my cleverness, not my intellect, not my money. Only the grace of God is able to make you holy. The other thing that's really remarkable in this passage is Peter says that God uses the most perishable things in the world to turn them into the most precious things in the world. He says, take, for instance, the blood of Christ. That, in human terms, is the most perishable thing that exists. If you lose all your blood, you die. But he turns it into the most precious thing in the world. In fact, in comparison, in verse 19 and 18, silver and gold are worthless compared to the blood of Christ. 
What he wants to do in your life when you bank totally on the grace of God is he wants to take your most perishable things from a human standpoint and turn them into the most precious things from a spiritual standpoint. One of the ways I've seen this work, about a year ago, we got a call from somebody who was responding to something said in the sermon. One of the things that Marty said in the sermon is, it doesn't matter what your skills and talents are, God can use them. And then flippantly, I almost guarantee this wasn't in his notes, he said, you can even use spreadsheets to serve God. We had a lady call our office and say, I, I want to serve. I, I'm not a, a front person. I'm not a people person necessarily, although it turns out she is. She's wonderful. But she says, but I can do spreadsheets. I can really do spreadsheets. And we're like, you are in the right place. We love spreadsheets. And every week for a year, she's come into our office and she's totally changed our office. Not only has she taken some responsibility for our attendance and for data entry and for things like that, but she's changed our office with her presence. She's delightful to have around. She's part of the team now. Why? Because she believed that one of the most perishable things in her life, spreadsheets, knowledge of Microsoft Excel, could be one of the most precious things in her life, serving the body of Christ. I wonder what that is for you. What is something that in your life you could say, I can use my spreadsheets for the glory of God. I can use something perishable in my life and turn it into something precious in the sight of God. What he says is he took something so perishable, the blood of one individual human being, and he turned it into something that's more precious than all the gold that you could find on the planet. He's like that lamb, that perishable lamb that the Hebrews used to bring and sacrifice to God. And it became precious to them, the stay for the wrath of God so that they wouldn't have to pay the penalty. What do you have that's perishable that God could use to make something precious? The last thing that Peter says is we have love running through our entire story. If being born again is at the beginning and holiness is at the end, the middle part of our story is loving one another earnestly. He says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, that's the beginning of our story, not from a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, the good news that was preached to you. The middle of our stories is to love earnestly, actively, strenuously. Love in a way that actually hurts you. Love with all your might. Love without reservation. Imagine... A lot of people think that this book, 1 Peter, was an early baptismal sermon because of this verse. They believe that the way that these verses are structured and what they say is that Peter was giving a sermon at an early baptism. And can you imagine this? Standing in the water with somebody, maybe over here in our tub in the venue, standing there in the water next to somebody and reading these verses. 
since you have purified your soul by obedience to the truth, I want you to love these people. Everybody watching, I want you to love these people earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, trusting in the promise that no matter what gets taken away from you in life, the word of God, the gospel of God lasts forever. Then in baptism, you enact the death of Christ, going into the tomb, into the water, raising up, being resurrected as a sign and as an action that we trust what God says over anything else that we see in the world. This would be a pretty good baptism sermon. What Peter's saying here is, no matter if you're being persecuted, alienated like these people were being, no matter if you believe you don't have a good story, no matter if you're struggling in your ability to be holy, the background, the trust, the thing that powers you through to love earnestly is that the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, it's easy to read this passage and say the word of the Lord meaning the Bible. The Bible will last forever. There will be Bibles in heaven. But that's not exactly what this passage means. He clarifies at the end of 25, the word, the word of the Lord that remains forever is the good news that was preached to you. The thing that lasts forever, God is going to lay down next to everything else. You say, this is the truth, this is the gospel, the story that began at the beginning and ends at the end of time and eternity, where you're written in as a person who's been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll lay that story down next to anything else. All of the things of the earth, they won't last. They'll be burned up. All the money will be burned up. All the power burned up. All the kings of the earth will eventually bow to the saints who are reigning. The health that we spend so much time thinking about ultimately won't last. The legacy that you leave won't last. Your abilities won't last. The things that you leave behind won't last. But the thing still standing at the end of the day is the good news of what God did for you in Jesus Christ. Your story is totally defined by the fact that God will never go back on his promise. This is the gospel. What God has done for you will never go away. Your sufferings have an expiration date in the first part of this. The earth has an expiration date. Your holiness, your efforts have an expiration date, but the word of God lasts forever. This is why I think it's such an apt quote for this passage to say that the stories that we tell, what happens on the inside and moves to the outside, what God does in us, our story that we get to tell of taking perishable things and making them precious actually has the power to inspire living hope again and again and again. Not just in a way that Walt Disney could see, but in a way that will be true for all of eternity, for us as believers. The word of the Lord endures forever. Our story is banking on that, that we've been born again at the beginning, we'll be holy at the end, and we have earnest love all the way through. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Not just the Bible, Lord, we do thank you for that and that we get to study it. But Lord, we thank you for your word to us that you'll never go back on your promises. 
Lord, that we can lay everything out on the line. We can love in a way that hurts us. That we can sacrifice everything to be holy, to have a relationship with you. And know at the end of the day that that inheritance you've given us is never going to fade. It's never going to go away. It's never going to be stolen. But Lord, you really will come for us and rescue us. Lord, you really will bring the not yet of our faith into fruition. And we'll get to see it and be with you forever. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering that you would help them to see that you've brought them this far and you will continue. Lord, I pray for those of us who think we don't have a very good story to have the courage to share it, to see the big picture. Lord, I pray for those who feel like they don't have anything to give or that you would show them that you've given the most precious thing of all, your son. We thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.